Hi, everyone. This is NBC 10 Boston's War in Ukraine, Your Questions Answered. Please continue to email your questions to ukrainequestions at nbcuni.com. I'm digital reporter Mary Marcos, and I'm here with Oleg Kotsuba of Harvard University and Maya Cross and Pablo Calderon of Northeastern University. Thank you guys for joining us. Thank you. So I wanna start by talking today, there's diplomats from both sides are gonna be meeting as they continue to negotiate. And I just wanted to go over with you what's been happening in those discussions and how close the two countries are to coming to some sort of resolution. Maya, would you like to start with that? Sure, yeah, I mean, we, we've seen the beginnings of these days of negotiations in Turkey. And so effectively we have Turkey sort of serving as a, an independent mediator in these diplomatic talks. Um, and actually we see some public announcements of various concessions. I, I think we have to sort of interpret these with some caution because the fighting continues and it continues in, in a very violent way. And while there are some movements of troops that might suggest um, Russian military backing down in some instances, it's really hard to to say that the diplomacy is working at this point. But I will say for me as a scholar of diplomacy, it is interesting to note that, you know, they are following some diplomatic protocol here, having a kind of neutral location where they're meeting um, a seemingly neutral mediator involved, certain aspects of the discussions being released to the public for debate and other aspects being kept um, quiet and private and behind closed doors. So we don't have a full picture of what's happening, but what really stands out to me is uh, Zelensky's recent announcement that he was willing to accept neutrality as part of these discussions. So for me, this is really quite a reversal from his previous stance. Um, in fact, the entire reason why Ukraine put up such a strong fight all this time um, was the the political value of sovereignty and the right to self-determination, the right to determine its own alliances. Um, so neutrality would mean giving that up. Um, and the other big thing is, is of course, uh, territorial integrity, which we can talk about. But the fact that Zelensky actually offered up neutrality, I think is, is quite significant. And I'm not sure if it would be enough for uh, Putin, it would entail essentially revoking any aspiration to join NATO in the future. They have left on the table the possibility of Ukraine joining the EU, but it would also mean um, to some degree demilitarizing or, or perhaps um, drawing down any offensive military capabilities, um, promising again not to nuclearize or to hold nuclear weapons or, or house NATO bases in Ukraine. Um, at the same time, the, the end result of such an agreement on neutrality could potentially mean that actually you have a, a sort of replacement or, or a pe parallel agreement um, to Article 5 of NATO because uh, neutrality does also require other powers in the international system to respect that, to recognize it, and to provide security guarantees. Um, so it's, it's a kind of complex concept, but at its core, it really does, to me, represent a reversal of some of the aims that Zelensky really had going into this. Great. Pablo, Oleg, do you, either of you have anything to add to that? I, I would agree with Maya's analysis, and I think that's spot on. And I think it, it does represent a shift in, in Zelensky's thinking and, and the thinking of Ukraine. Uh, and I agree that as well, we have to take these negotiations with a pinch of salt as well. And whatever comes out of them as well, there's still a lot of uncertainty 
Uh, but I do think it's significant, and now we're talking of a way forward, particularly from the Ukrainian perspective, because I do think this puts the ball firmly in Putin, Vladimir Putin's court, and he has to now react to this and respond to this and see if this is going to be enough. And I think to a great extent, in, from my mind, Vladimir Putin, if it was a normal, more or less democratic society, he put himself really into a corner and he dig a hole that is very hard to come out of because once you start saying and you start labeling the other side as Nazis and, and uh, you know all these things that he said without any foundation in reality, it is very hard to then sit down and negotiate and then sell any sort of negotiated agreement to your own people saying like, you know, they are, they are Nazis and all these things, but they're not so bad and we can live with that. It's very hard to manage that line for a normal democratic society, right? Of course, uh, Russia under Vladimir Putin is not a normal democratic society and Vladimir Putin has almost absolute control of the media and he can sell almost anything as some form of victory. But I still find it interesting about how he's going to toe that line. So that's what I think. It's it's hard for me to still trust these negotiations. Uh, I think it's important and it's, it's obviously a welcome development. Uh, but I think it's going to be very, very hard to see how that's going to be maintained. And, and I agree with Maya as well. The problem here, the issue with neutrality, is that Ukraine would give neutrality in exchange of security guarantees, which would have to somehow replicate something similar to NATO anyways. And I don't see how uh, we can package that in a way that it would be acceptable for Vladimir Putin. Uh, because, th- again, that neutrality will have to come from guarantees that the international community will protect that neutrality. So how that is sold to Vladimir Putin and by Vladimir Putin as something of a success is what I find interesting. But again, these are very abnormal times and, and, and Putin can pretty much get away with anything in terms of selling it as a victory. I think from, from the Ukrainian perspective, I think we need to take this, I think the grain of salt uh, in this, in all of this, is actually outweighs everything else, perhaps. Um, from the Ukrainian perspective, as well as from the Russian perspective, both parties are trying to buy time. Russian troops are regrouping for whatever the next stage is. I don't think they're giving up on, on taking the big cities. They're kind of rethinking their strategy, using more long-range missiles and so on, targeting more of civil infrastructure, as well as uh, logistics. So the, in later in later days, if you have been, been following, uh, depots of um, uh, all kinds of gasoline and diesel fuel and etc have been hit, including in Western Ukraine. Um, and so that that points to the fact that they are transitioning to the next phase. So they're trying to disrupt Ukrainian logistics supply lines. Uh, they're trying to disrupt potentially the next season for sowing uh, wheat and so on, so as to put pressure on the world market. Um, and so I don't, I don't think that any of the current negotiations are, you know, are taken seriously uh, by either side. On the one hand, Putin has proven himself to be an extremely unreliable partner in any agreements. Um, and so um, taking his word for anything is becoming more and more difficult. Uh, on the Ukrainian side, I think the, um, those concessions that, that Maya has pointed out are in fact an attempt to further uh, reveal or kind of uncover uh, what is really behind Putin's motivations. Uh, we know that the rhetorics has been one thing, but the actions have been something else when, when, when we see when we look at Russia. And so from the very beginning, as we have argued also in our podcast, the real motivation for Putin is not so much Ukraine's joining NATO, 
right? It's really kind of the broader integration with the West is democratization and the, the danger that such a democratic country, you know, on Russia's direct border would represent to Putin's personal regime of power. And so, um, so in current conversations, so kind of what, what the Ukrainians are keeping intact is the kind of the license on integrating with the West. And that's a no-go for Putin anyway. And so they're trying to take away the, the NATO card from the table so as not to allow Putin to play it anymore. Because some, as we know, some Western leaders as well as political parties in the West have recognized those uh, claims by Putin as legitimate as legitimate security concerns due to NATO coming to Russia's border. So now that that's no longer on the table, that removes that rhetorical argument, but it doesn't mean that it changes anything in the calculations uh, for, for Russia and for Putin. So as Russia, as these talks are happening, Russia is, is sort of claiming that it's scaling back uh, operations in, near Kyiv and, and and another northern city during these conversations. and. There's some skepticism about that, maybe to your point, Oleh, because they're regrouping. Uh, but Russia had previously said that the main focus was really more on the east, eastern region. And so I wonder if the pullback could be about focusing more on that part uh, rather than actually just, you know, in this sort of good faith mm -hmm. to continue having these conversations, you know, sort of pulling back troops. What, what do you think about that, uh, Pablo? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point as well. Yeah, I mean, I think going back to Oleg's points as well, it's it's the sort of agreement that even if it materializes into something of an agreement, it's very hard to see how either side respects it, right? Because the end Ukraine could say, well, it's not really a, a, an agreement if I'm doing it on their duress and I'm being forced into this position by an invading military. So it's not really a recognized international agreement as were. And then we know Vladimir Putin doesn't really care about his disagreements anyways, because there's already been an agreement that he just violated. So it's very hard to maintain this. And, and again, it links to the question about what are the real objectives of, of Vladimir Putin and, and what he can sell as, as a victory. And I think from my perspective, it would be, and obviously Oleg might, 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 might have a better perspective on this, but from Ukraine, I think they wouldn't be willing to compromise territorial integrity. And this idea that Vladimir Putin would settle something of a solution similar to sort of the Korean Peninsula and China, I don't see how that would become palatable to the West. I don't see how that becomes palatable to Ukraine. And I don't see that as a better alternative at all. And if anything, that would really work, that would really be a, a worse alternative than some form of neutrality with some sort of security guarantees. Uh, because if Ukraine gives away its territorial integrity, it gives the, you know, it just gives Russia the incentive to try this again. And again, not only in Ukraine, but somewhere else. And I think that would set a really dangerous precedent. So I really, I don't really think that's in the Ukrainian calculations. I don't really think that's in the Western calculations. Nobody wants to see another North Korea or a Korean Peninsula situation anywhere else anyways. And I don't see how that would work to the advantage of Russia either. Is either Russia going to expand its territory all the way and take this eastern part of Ukraine, in which case it's still the same situation. You just move the border, but you're still going to have and even more hostile Ukraine, right on your border, whatever you want to, or you set some sort of puppet regime in the area that is some sort of a buffer state between the two, which I think would be completely unpalatable for Ukraine, the West, and I don't think anybody wants to be that outcome. Uh, so I don't think this is really something that it's, it's, a, it's a possible solution in any shape, way, or form. If anything, it would be a worse outcome in my mind. 
left my end. Do you have anything to add? Well, I think from the Ukraine perspective, Ukraine is trying to buy time because Ukrainian citizens are dying. There's unspeakable suffering going on in Mariupol. As we know, there's literally, you know, it's it's very akin to genocide. People don't have water. People don't have food. They kind of bury the dead ones. You know, they're keep, they keep targeting civilian infrastructure. So for Ukraine, they're trying to buy time in order to perhaps get more military help from the West. And again, kind of the current situation and the the more the kind of the increased reliance of the Russian troops on uh, missiles that can be shot from farther away, as we have seen it happen in the last days and weeks, uh, it makes the Ukrainian argument stronger for uh, you know their pleas with the with Western partners to provide anti-air anti-aircraft uh, uh, defense systems as well as potentially the fighter jets. Uh, in terms of uh, any real concessions on the territory, again, here the real problem for the for Vladimir Putin is the Ukrainian people, not so much the political elite of Ukraine. Um, the Ukrainian people are not going to uh, accept any such deal. Um, that has to do with the fact that people have seen what actually happens in the currently occupied regions of Ukraine both in the Crimea as well as in the Donetsk, the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk people republics, uh, there are massive violations of human rights. Uh, as you know, people have been abducted, tortured, killed without any uh, you know, uh, semblance of justice or rule of law on the ground. The uh, secret services have been doing hor horrific things both in Crimea as well as in the, the DPR and the LPR, as, as they call themselves. So especially those regions and those cities and towns that are close to that line of conflict, they know intimately what it means there because people cross over all the time, you know, to get Ukrainian pensions, to buy Ukrainian, uh, you know, groceries and then travel back to take care of their sick ones or for whatever reasons, right? So. Ukraine is very well aware what is going on in, in those occupied regions. No one wants that for themselves. That's why the West, Europe are so attractive as, as a model for integration and development, uh, because, that, because the opposite is just so horrifying and so terrible. And so no concessions in territory will ever be accepted. Uh, that perhaps means, means that uh, you know, a war, a new war may be postponed, and that would buy time for Ukrainians to regroup, also to arm, to train more, and so on. But if if there is something signed that accepts, you know, uh, either uh, what what they call the cleaving of Ukraine into West and East, or any kind of other acceptance of the currently occupied territories, that is just not going to be accepted by the people. Great, Maya. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with the analysis so far. Um, I think, you know, for sure, it's uh, on the level of the Ukrainian people, any sort of full scale occupation of any part of Ukraine won't be sustainable because the people won't stand for it. We've already seen them putting their lives on the line to protect their homes and their cities. Um, on a larger scale for the international community, it would re represent a significant loss in this kind of battle to uphold the liberal international order. Um, with all of the help of the West and, and other allies uh, sanctioning Russia and providing Ukraine with resources to fight. And yet, if the end result is some kind of partitioning of Ukraine or neutrality of Ukraine, 
it's it's just a, a deep loss. Um, and, and I do keep coming back to this um, hope that the EU will soon invite Ukraine to be a formal candidate for membership, especially when in these sort of grain of salt negotiations, we're seeing that membership in the EU is still on the table. I think Zelensky has made impassioned appeals for an open sort of timeline to membership and the West hasn't responded in this area. It is not actually that costly to actually create a timeline for Ukraine to enter the EU, even though it will um, be a lengthy process once it's a candidate. So I think, you know, this is a battle for Ukraine as well as the larger international community and upholding the rule of law and justice. And so, yeah, the, any kind of split of Ukraine is it really flies in the face of that. And it just shows the weakness of the world in the face of one country, one leader, Putin, who really has shown that his his military is not up to the task um, in many ways. And this is why he's relying, as Ola said, on you know, airstrikes and other things, even um, potentially chemical weapons um, going forward. Would that mean that the next step in your in your mind is that that admission as far as the West's support for Ukraine or what, what more do we need? Do they need to be doing at this point, Maya? Well, I think that, you know, the EU has had that application from Ukraine. It also has had Georgia and Moldova's applications for some time. And this next step involves a report from the European Commission. I think that, you know, usually this is a longer process, but given the nature of the invasion and the crisis, this could be a faster process. Um, it, it still requires Ukraine to, you know, adopt in EU law so that it's in conformity with the level of integration achieved so far. So I definitely think that's a major step that could help. I also think that, you know, ramping up more sanctions. So really examining where in the energy sector can they go further with Russia's recent um, request to receive uh, funds from energy in rubles and then the rejection of that. Germany is already starting to ration and prepare for a scenario where it doesn't rely so heavily on on energy from Russia. So I think these kinds of things need to to go further, of course, not to the extent where you sort of totally undermine your the European economy. But, um, you know, where, examining where can we um, really tighten the screws here and then thinking also about secondary sanctions. If, if we're seeing other countries help Russians um, get around these sanctions, whether it's China or Turkey or others, really examining whether other countries are um, kind of on board with supporting Russia in, in gray areas of the economy. Great. Ola, what do you think? What more needs to be done right now? Well, I think the uh, when, uh, Ukraine needs stronger defensive weapons to protect regular citizens, children and mothers and women and elderly on the ground from those airstrikes. And I think the West should finally follow through on that. The view is solidifying in Ukraine and in Eastern Europe that NATO and United States and other partners are simply afraid <laughs> to stand up to Vladimir Putin. And that's not a good image to project anywhere in the world especially not in Eastern Europe right now. And so I think that, um, you know, they need to de uh, deliver those weapons to Ukraine that will protect the civilians on the ground from these airstrikes. Uh, and I agree that the sanctions need to be strengthened on all, on all fronts. So as, as you probably know, the, uh, the gas supplies already from Russia to Europe, to, the, to Eastern Germany near the city of Frankfurt uh, on Oder, uh, through the gas pipeline that is uh, called Yamal Europe, 
has uh, have basically uh, uh, declined to zero as of today, as of yesterday, in fact. Um, and so that already means that Russia is beginning to, um, you know, to uh, kind of implement its plan of blackmailing Europe regarding the supply of energy. And so energy is here the, nat the natural next step in putting more pressure on Russia. And that's the real, the only real one where Russia is uh, very sensitive because their economy is very one-dimensional, as we discussed before. Uh, you know, putting putting pressure on energy and reducing their supply of cash uh, through the income that they you know uh, have been receiving uh, from from the sale of energy is the way to go. We talked last week about that being a sort of a self-sacrificing measure, right? Is that that's what's happening right now? Russia's beginning to sort of use that as a weapon again and sort of sort of a retaliation against Europe. Well, uh, yes, yes, and no. On the one hand. Uh, you know, as a as an autocracy, they have a very kind of long uh, list of things that they can implement in absence of, you know, income from from you know outside sources. What I mean is that there are measures how they can put pressure on their own economy and their own people without any retribution from those. Right? They are not democratically elected in essence, and therefore they are not really uh, you know they don't really report to the voters who you know, might have elected them. So that's very different in, in the West. And so they're trying basically to use the democratic system of the West against the Western societies, against the Western democracies, which is a game that Putin has been playing for a long time, right? Using democratic, uh, you know, instruments to put more pressure on Western partners. Because if there is no gas in Germany, then the current ruling coalition in Germany is, you know, could be voted out, right? Because there, there is enough ultra-left and ultra-right parties who are willing to side with Putin and assure deliveries of, of energy, right? And so in that sense, you know, at home, you know, they can, you know, reduce the income of people without, you know, much of a consequence. But abroad, the same reduction in energy supply could, could kind of, could deliver a much more effective result. I would just, yeah, I would just add that. I mean, I think there's two things we need to consider here. One is what can be done more in the military sense, in the immediate sense. And I think that's a very important point. And I agree to a great extent with all again that more could be done, in particular to help Ukraine maintain control of the skies and, and, and make sure that, um, you know, I think the, the Ukrainian military forces, the Ukrainian people have proven very adept repelling the, the, the Russian aggression so far. And I think that's nothing, that's not something that, personally didn't expect and I don't think many people expected and it doesn't help that the Russian advance has been truncated and not really helped by some ineptitude on their part to a great extent so I think there's something that more that could be done in the more immediate term particularly in offering Ukraine more anti-air defenses and probably as well the exchange of, 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 of uh, fighter jets seems to me the obvious progression in, in terms of of sanctions I think it's a little bit Sanctions can be good in the short term, insofar as they can put pressure on the regime to stop funding the military operation. Uh, my concern with more sanctions is that we've seen in the past, particularly, you know, if the objective is eventually to stabilize the situation in the long term, we've seen that sanctions can sometimes work across purposes. And instead of weakening the regimes that the sanctions are applied against, sometimes they help to strengthen those regimes. I mean, we've seen the same happen in Iran, for example, where the regime seems to have been strengthening since. I mean. Cuba has been under sanctions for 60 years, right? Uh, so it's, it's very, very complicated, and we have to be very careful how we manage the sanctions. I have to be mm -hmm. careful about the objective of the sanctions. I think mm -hmm. 
the point about secondary sanctions is perhaps a more interesting one, putting more pressure and, and using diplomatic pressure as well to stop their country from offering an easy way out for the Russian economy in particular. Uh, but I think in the shorter term, there's more that could be done in a diplomatic perspective, offering more to Ukraine in terms of membership to the European Union. I entirely agree with that. And there is certainly ways, these are processes that usually take years and years and years and negotiations that are very, very tough and very difficult and very long processes of economic adaptation, legal adaptation. But there is something definitely that could be done in order to fast track the position of Ukraine as a, as a, as a prospective member of the European Union and accept it as a, as a, as a, as a, as a candidate for EU integration and start the proper process of, of as, as Maya was pointing out, uh, uploading the, the, the laws and, and the regulations that need to be taken part in within Ukraine and making the process formally start. And I think that would send the right signal and the right message as well to you, to in Ukraine and to Vladimir Putin that Ukraine is going to be formally accepted into the Western European Union uh, institutions, which, by the way, is what seems to be the democratic will of the people of Ukraine. And that needs to be respected because that's what Ukraine wants and that's what the European Union wants. And that's what should happen. And we shouldn't let Russia or anybody else dictate uh, the future of the Ukrainian people other than the Ukrainian people. I can just add just a couple, a couple uh, uh, small things. Number one is the, the kind of the continued power of the Russian propaganda. Uh, I think that you know, what we could do more is try to kind of um, penetrate the bubble that uh, Russian government has created in Russia in terms of informing the people. How to do that? I don't know. I don't have a recipe, obviously, but there have been some attempts to do that. Uh, the reason I'm saying this is that... Um, you know, like just recently, I saw a post from from a friend who now lives in she is Russian. She now lives in Northern Europe, and she basically kind of announced to to the friends that her parents have disowned her for her opposition to the war in Ukraine. And uh, the reason for that, you know, is that you know she believes that the kind of that unified image of reality that people are getting delivered in Russia is in such a stark contrast. To, the, to what is actually reality, the reality on the ground, that people are willing to sacrifice food for, for ideas, for those you know, propagandistic images that they're being delivered. And so we need to remember that um, you know, in order to really overcome this conflict, we need to also think about how uh, you know, to get through to the Russian people and what, what the mechanisms there might be. And I know that the White House has been working with some uh, influencers on social media. We know that there have been some um, hacking attacks on Russian media, trying to get information out, even just on television screens to people and so on. But more of that, I think, needs to happen in order for people to actually realize in Russia even what is what is going on in Ukraine right now. Um, and number two, I agree that the sanctions have this very kind of long range and they may pol uh, politically stabilize regimes in inside the sanctioned countries. Uh, however, at the same time, so we know that there have been investigations going on into various links uh, between Russian oligarchs, Russian uh, government official officials, and prominent Western institutions. And so I think that putting pressure through those links as well, when the uh, children of oligarchs cannot study at Yale anymore, or at Harvard, or somewhere else, or Russian government officials cannot own any property abroad and kind of derive you know, benefits from that value, I think that the additional dimension that is more, in, in a sense, more immediate and perhaps could be utilized here too. Great. 
we, we, we were talking about except um, the European Union sort of accepting Ukraine. Wouldn't that just wouldn't that just kind of further like anger and, and provoke Putin? What, what is the like, I don't know, wouldn't that just kind of make him more angry? Isn't that exactly what he doesn't want? I think in a way it's possible, but it also calls Putin's bluff, right? Because he's been focusing so much on NATO. And one thing that's interesting about EU uh, candidacy and membership is there are neutral countries within the EU. So if Zelensky wants to continue with this strategy of sort of dangling neutrality as a way to, to call Putin's bluff, neutrality and EU membership are actually compatible. Um, so I think, you know, there's some interesting ways to get around it. But for sure, you know, when I think about what is really ultimately a threat to Putin, it is what the EU represents. It's it's integration, it's policy sharing and convergence on so many levels that you practically can't find a policy area that isn't integrated within Europe. It's the attraction of the West and this free market economy and democracy. So the EU really represents so much more of what is a threat to Putin's power in Russia than NATO does. NATO is is a, is a bit more basic as an organization in terms of focusing on um, military alliances and security and defense, whereas the EU is extremely comprehensive. Um, so I think we would have to see, but in a way, you know, Putin, he doesn't he doesn't ever like to acknowledge the strength of the EU as an actor. He always treats EU member states as individual countries. He refuses, and he did this in the lead up to the war, he refused to receive a response from the EU. He said, if you want to respond to our, our letter of, of intent, you know, you need to do it individually. So in a way, if he has to kind of step up and say, no, we're also against EU membership. We see this as threatening. That's almost, a, an, I mean, it is blatantly an acknowledgement of the strength of the EU, which he, he continually tries to avoid. So it could be quite a smart strategy on multiple levels. And I just don't like this idea of Zelensky continually sort of pleading with Western leaders to acknowledge that, you know, they are fighting and dying to be part of the West. They were waving EU flags in 2014 um, before Crimea. And um, they see their future with the West, and yet they're not given some kind of public prospect for membership. So I think this is a no-brainer in, in, in many respects. Yeah, again, I, I, would, I would agree with Maya. And obviously, there are, there are countries already that are members of the European Union that border with Russia, mainly Finland, and, and, uh, Finland that are not members of NATO, right? And they might maintain their neutrality. And I think it was the Russian government that was actually talking about a, a sort of Sweden... Uh, Austria, uh, um, sort of Finland compromise in which some sort of neutrality in that form is accepted. And if you pursue that particular avenue, because the European Union is not necessarily a traditional security arrangement in the same way that NATO is, uh, then what you're saying really is what you're against is not necessarily what your concern is, is not a security concern. And this idea that's become somehow normalized in this very sort of antiquated 1980s view of international relations in which Russia can do whatever it wants to if it feels the security threatened somehow, which in my mind is, is completely insane, shouldn't go back to those times. But it's this idea that what you're really against is, a, is Ukraine joining the West, Ukraine becoming democratic, and Ukraine basically becoming a Western country, and it has nothing to do with security concerns. And the fact is that all, all other countries that border with Russia are already part of that. And if Russia didn't do anything back then, 
Uh, Vladimir Putin didn't do anything back then, it's because he could, right? And the only reason why he's doing it now is because he feels emboldened, he feels that he can do it, and he feels that the West is showing weakness, which I am afraid is exactly what we've been doing to some extent. Again, showing weakness, hesitancy. I mean, just a few days ago when, when Joe Biden said that Vladimir Putin couldn't possibly continue as leader of Russia, he created this huge controversy where I think this shouldn't be this shouldn't be controversial, right? I mean, I don't think anybody wants to see Vladimir Putin continue as a leader of Russia, probably not even in Russia itself. Um, and I, that shouldn't really be as controversial. We shouldn't be walking so carefully on eggshells. Uh, and I agree with my entirety. I think that would be a very good, very valid political outcome and a very good maneuvering from the European Union and from Ukraine as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I congratulate Maya. She has phrased this just absolutely brilliantly, I think. It deserves to be a piece of its own in writing because really, it's really hard to, to counteract uh, the idea of freedom that is so attractive to anyone in the world. You know, the idea that, you know, we don't want to be slaves. We want to decide our own fate. It's universal, you know, and um, uh, Putin has been trying to attack the European Union in various other venues, but he really has been uh, having a really hard time to find how to attack uh, the European Union, right? And so the line of attack has been, we can, we can, like, there's basically three things. One is the weakness in making decisions. Right. And so kind of this democratic process he has described as, you know, an ability to kind of to come to a decision. And so to that he has counterposed the idea of this autocratic rule that makes the decision sin single handedly. Number two is the supposed West's decadence. Right. We have seen this before, but basically so LGBTQ rights, uh, rights of women, you know, uh, rights of minorities and so on. And so they, they have basically you know, called uh, Western countries, Western societies, perverts of, of all sorts and tried to kind of, you know, kind of create this image of some kind of deviant, deviant society where horrible things are happening, including especially against children, right? Because children is the ultimate weapon in this war. And finally, the third one is the fact that it's, um, it's a democracy uh, that is, um, you know, uh, separated from religion. And so we have seen that in Russia, Putin has relied as a kind of as a countermeasure increasingly more and more on this kind of state uh, uh, fusion with religion, with the Orthodox Christianity, uh, absorbing to a large extent the Rus Russian Christian church into state structures, you know, in that it allows us to perform certain propaganda functions uh, in the past years. And so in reality, of course, you know, you can only you can only achieve that by fear. And so the, the, the Putin regime has been trying to work with fear to kind of instill that image of an enemy of the European Union. But, you know, that's it's still a very hard uh, thing to do, because when people actually experience freedom themselves, you know, then it's very hard to go back. And so Ukraine is never going back to that. And he is afraid that Russia may, you know, the kind of regular citizens in Russia may want to travel the same, down the same road. And that's why the kind of the idea of a democratic, uh, uh, you know, integrated into the West Ukraine is so, so dangerous to his personal system of power. Great. Well, we are out of time, but I will take your suggestion, Ola, about writing Maya's answer as its own article as I'm writing this week. Um, thank you guys so much. I look forward to talking to you all again about these important subjects next Wednesday. Thank you very much. Thank you.